my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about everybody's favorite adorable directorial figure, Agnes Varda. Well, you know, she's somebody who became a real brand in her later years. Somebody who was always charming and delightful, and you know, a very a very tiny person who uh, spread joy and happiness wherever she went, putting up murals on walls of, of people with her with her funny street art companion jr yeah she was somebody that when you talk about a woman filmmaker it's like oh yeah agnes varda i love her movies it's almost like a pre-packaged thing right there was nothing in her later years threatening when people talked about her which is not necessarily the case about her earlier films because she was always a figure that followed her own passions and made films that were never aiming to be commercial in the way that some of the other French filmmakers around the time that she started did. Uh, First of all, I should say that this is one of those filmmakers we sometimes do who has a very big and passionate following and whose work I have only a casual acquaintanceship with. So uh, please take my opinions and maybe Justin's opinions too as a work in progress there's a lot there I still want to explore. So we basically say that any time we have a woman filmmaker that we tackle. Yeah, what does that say about us? N- nothing good, does it? Nope, nothing good. Uh, here's my thing with Agnes Varda. Obviously, undeniably a force for good in the world. Uh, when I saw Faces Places, which was a very celebrated movie a few years ago, everyone found it very wonderful. I honestly found it a bit annoying. Why is that, Will? It sounds like saying that you find puppies annoying or chocolate mm-hmm. annoying. It's a, it's such an obviously charming and, you know, twee movie about this intergenerational friendship and about spreading joy across the land by, you know, doing street art. It seemed very twee to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a jerk. Maybe I'm just the Grinch. It's been a while since I've seen it. Diving into her work a little more this week... I think there's a side of Varda that is exuberant and wacky and full of wit, and uh, there's a side of her that is angry and hard-edged, and her films seem to swing pendulously across this spectrum. And I think that near the end of her career, that kind of angry filmmaking is something that she maybe just didn't have the energy to do anymore. When she made Faces Places, she was in her late 80s. Yeah, and she also became sort of like the anti-Godard, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see it illustrated in that scene in Faces Places where they go to visit him and he doesn't doesn't come out or he's off and he sort of insults her. She was a very accessible figure, somebody who was very eager to communicate and reach younger audiences and make herself available, which is obviously another reason why she became so beloved later in life. Anyway, I think after looking at her work this week, I perhaps gravitate more towards the harder-edged movies like uh, Vagabond, for instance. Mm -hmm. But the emotions in most of her movies are never simple. And it is very much a spectrum, I think, of those two sides. You know, one is not ever completely absent from the other. Well, I think that out of all of the filmmakers that came out of the French New Wave, and we should note, yes, we know she was not part of the French New Wave. She was part of the Left Bank, which was a bunch of filmmakers that came out before Godard and Truffaut and Rivette and Chabrol could advertise themselves in their own magazines. Yeah. <laughs> she made her first film, La Pointe Courte, much earlier than them, and she never got the acclaim that they got. But with her second film, Cléo de saint Cassette, she suddenly got all the attention because she had an object like Breathless that felt different. And throughout her career, I think that 
more than anybody else, she, like you said, is the anti-Godard. She was never interested in making conventionally narrative films like someone along the lines of Chabrol or Truffaut did. She was always interested in experimentation and kind of pushing the medium as far as it could go and for it to express her own artistic interests, which were very wide and varied. Like, she started as a photographer before she became a filmmaker. Well, you mentioned she's the anti-Godard, and probably a lot of that has to do with the fact that her, her work is, I think, generally more accessible than his. She's not obscurantist. I think a lot of what she's saying is very much out in the open, but but also the fact that she is a woman in such a male-dominated filmmaking community. Godard's movies have a lot of what might be termed toxic masculinity in them, and, and her films are very much from the perspective of and about the experiences of women. But I think she's also a structuralist experimenter with her movies. Like you mentioned Vagabond, that one does not have a structure of any kind of even normal narrative art film, and she's always pushing the limits of what a movie can be, whether it's the way that documentary elements infect the picture that she's telling, which is evident all the way at Cleo de Saint-Cassette, which you have this character who is waiting for a medical diagnosis and is dealing with, well, am I going to die? What does life mean? And she's walking ar around this Paris that is completely captured off the cuff. Yeah, Cleo from 5 to 7 from 1962, it's a movie that was greenlit after the success of Breathless, and it offers some of the same excitements that Breathless has. Like Breathless, there's this sense of a young filmmaker excited with the possibilities of the medium. So there are all these strange and unusual and experimental flourishes like the scene where Cleo, uh, played by Karine Marchand, starts singing and the camera, you know, it's an off-the-cuff singing scene, but the camera moves in slowly on her face and it becomes almost an otherworldly interlude. And there are all these unusual tangents when she's out on the streets of Paris, like street performers that she encounters, one of whom, you know, eats, eats frogs and another of whom is sticking needles through his arm. And there's also a film within a film a silent film pastiche with Jean-Luc Godard appearing in it as kind of a Buster Keaton type character. What's interesting about comparing it to Breathless, and I know it does her disservice always continually bringing up Godard, is the fact that like, I feel that Cleo de Saint-Cassette was the film that Godard wanted to make, but didn't have the formal control to pull off. Oh, that's interesting. Because here is a film that is in love with cinema and is kind of approaching it and experimenting it in different controlled ways, while Godard's product is somebody who puts a bunch of jump cuts at the last minute because somebody says, hey, can you speed this up somehow? Huh. I mean, I love Breathless, and I love the kind of raw, spontaneous quality of it. But I see what you're saying. I, I do think that this movie... One of the other things it shares with Breathless, sorry to belabor the comparison, is that it feels like a city symphony. You follow her around Paris, and it's full of all those scenes of busy cafes, and you're looking out the window, and there's real traffic, and there's just so much, there's so much like going on in the frame. It's almost so much, to, too much to take in. And you realize that obviously it was such an innovation that these new wave people did going out on the streets with a camera, natural light, but you still don't even see that very much. You're not used to seeing, even in movies that where they shoot outside a studio, you're not used to seeing this much stuff. And on the last point of Breathless Cleo, one of the things is that, like, what is Breathless about? It's about a jerk who acts like a jerk the entire time, 
And then at the end, he dies a jerk. While um, Agnes Varda wants her protagonist to kind of struggle with what being a jerk means and what, you know, facing your own mortality can bring out in a person. Well, something I realized is that unlike a lot of the new wave films, this one is, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's it's free of sex. There isn't that same kind of erotic undercurrent in all of the interactions between men and women that are there in Breathless or Masculine Feminine. Yeah, the kind of young, horny guy who gets to make movies and use his powers in a way that he could portray women on screen, which, that's what it is. Yeah, well, the the early Godard movies are very male gazy. Mm-hmm. This is a film that's about being a woman, and it's about the anxiety of keeping up appearances and of playing roles and of being looked at as a woman. There are all those scenes of people on the street, you know, looking at her. Um, and, you know, there's that shopping scene where she's sort of primping herself and trying on lots of different clothes. And, you know, I love the way that you said it's a city symphony in that, like, the direction also takes that into account. Like, one point she'll be sitting somewhere and will suddenly start to hear a conversation behind her that has nothing to do with which is going on in front of her. And those are, like very conscious efforts by Varda to be like, okay, I'm giving you permission to look at everything around Cleo as this movie plays on. Yeah, and there are so many just strange faces in it. And it's one of those things that we talked about this, I think when we discussed people on a Sunday, that you know that these people that are in the film probably have no idea that they're in like a classic French new wave picture, but they just got captured on the screen in this particular moment of their lives. Yeah, it's like these little bottled moments of time, which is an idea that I think we'll get back to uh, later in her career. So as we go further into her career, I got to point out something before I forget is that her titles are amazing in French and they suck in English. So one thing the other doesn't is l'unchant l'autre pas in French. So it has like a rhyming structure kind of to let you know, oh, these people are different, but they're kind of the same as well. And together they make a rhyming kind of couple. It follows the friendship over a span of more than a decade between two women. There's an older one, Pauline, who is a single mother with two children who finds herself pregnant and with no means of being able to support this additional child. And there's a younger one, Suzanne, who's a high school student when we first encounter her, who seeks to raise the money for uh, her illegal abortion. We meet up with these characters many years later when Suzanne is an adult. Suzanne has become a traveling pop singer. Pauline lives in the country with her children working on a farm, they meet and reconnect at a rally outside of a trial for an illegal abortion, which becomes a rally for the legalization of abortion. This, by the way, was uh, a movement that was ongoing at the time that this movie was made and serves as the backdrop for it. When this movie was made, Varda had spent a lot of time in the United States following her husband, Jacques Demy, and she got really involved in all of these political causes. And the kind of fictional extension of that is I think one thing the other does it. A kind of compression of all those ideas and themes put into a narratively digestible form that I think works very well. This one, I think she hits that perfect note of being able to portray these two radically different women who are only able to get through life 
by helping each other. Yeah, that's right. We meet them all these years later, and then they still live very different lives, so they don't see much of each other after that. But they correspond and fill each other in on the events of their lives, the strange journeys that they've taken. It's been said that one of the more dated elements of the film is that Suzanne marries an Iranian man who, of course, turns out to be more traditional and conservative than she believed. But it's a very warm film. I, you know, I had prepared myself to think that it would be more about abortion than it turned out to be. This is the one that you often hear about as being, you know, the, the abortion movie. Uh, but abortion is really only just sort of an incidental part of it. Well, not an incidental part, but it's it's a backdrop to the movie. And it's really about this unusual but deep bond that unites these two women across space and time. The thing that surprised me about the film is that it's not one with any big on-screen dramatics or moments that are there just to, like, shock the audience. I mean, there's one suicide early on that gets closest to that, but the relationship between the two women is just built on them sending letters to each other and the support that they get from those letters going out and being read. And that's what like is the subtle and I think moving thing about the film is them just saying like, Oh no, you know, I would suggest you do this. Not like a big emphatic. This is the most important thing. And Oh, this big decision. It's just them being there for each other that gets them through these difficult situations. Yeah. And there's a respect for the differences in each other's lives and experiences and mm-hmm. lifestyles. You know, when you're talking about dated, whoo boy, this is one hippie movie. <laughs> but it, but charmingly so. It's visually very, yeah. very beautiful. And, uh, you know, who doesn't like hanging around with some hippies? Well, I mean, in real life, no way. I'm a starchy, blue-collar dude. <laughs> you're right. They, they smell very bad. Speaking of dated, I don't know if dated is the right word for it, but certainly a movie that would be have a difficult time being made today. I watched her 1988 film, Kung Fu Master. Ooh, sounds great. Lots of martial arts in it, right? Well, well I was hoping, but uh, it t- turns, out, <laughs> turns out not. I actually didn't know anything about what this movie was about, but it turns out it's about the love between a 40-year-old woman, played by Jane Birkin, and an adolescent boy, played by Matthew Demi. That's right, uh, Agnes Varda's own son. And when you say adolescent, you mean 14 years old. That's right. Which is still an adolescent. Whoa, there were a lot of movies like this around this time. Like Louis Mal, A Murmur from the Heart, had an adolescent boy having sex with his mom. As I understand... Uh, pedophilia or ephibophilia was a subject of interest for French intellectuals around this time. Why? <laughs> I Look, I don't know why. Although, frankly, it was probably also a subject of interest for American intellectuals, too, when you consider that, you know, uh, Woody Allen's Manhattan. Yeah, and even, you know, a few years ago, That's My Boy. <laughs> well, probably the best film of this subgenre of pro-pedophilia movies. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but I, I did like Kung Fu Master, as strange and uncomfortable as it was. I mean, it would be a much different experience if the genders were reversed, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciated that it was a movie that aimed for something difficult, and it works because of the acting and because of the ambiguity and because of the fact that it never really gets into sex. And the title Kung Fu Master is because the kid loves to play the uh, Kung Fu video game. That's right, which leads to a couple of like neat little weird interludes where like you see him fighting like he's a side-scrolling video game character. (laughs) So there is some Kung Fu in the movie. And we both watch Vagabond, which is like the broken mirror image of one thing the other doesn't. Where I've read in interviews, Varda has said that she believes that feminism can only work if women collaborate together 
and that all alone that those goals cannot be achieved. And you have that in some form in Vagabond, which is about a young woman who just goes out on the world, she wants to be free, and she wants no responsibility. It's a difficult movie, actually, because the the idea of going out into the world and being free and having no responsibilities is sort of a romantic idea. Like, you could see you know, kind of a positive portrayal of it in Chaplin's Little Tramp, or even mm-hmm. to some extent uh, Into the Wild, the Sean Penn movie, which, you know... Well, does not end very well. It doesn't end well, but he has a lot of fun getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this one is about how the experience of, you know, being alone and homeless just kind of grinds you down physically and spiritually. And what I found really interesting about this one is that the way that she tells the story is through the eyes of all of the people that this vagabond meets. And she does it by interviewing these people directly in documentary style. And just like the camera pans over, and the person turns toward the camera and talks, which creates a interesting fourth wall break where, you know, she's constantly making you aware that you're watching a movie. And she also makes you aware right from the get-go that this young woman played by Sandrine Bonner is dead. And that you're going to follow how it led to this death. And I think that this one melds a lot of different elements that she'd been working with before and presents them in such a stark and angry way that I found refreshing even watching now. Because, like, the kind of balance between fiction and realism is something that Varda always loved playing with. And that's kind of why eventually she left fiction behind completely. Well, there's also the fact that her last fiction film, 101 Nights, was very little loved and a financial failure, although I've always been a bit intrigued by it. It's from 1995, the official centennial year of cinema, and it stars uh, Michael Piccoli as Mr. Cinema, who's 100 years old, and he's a man who seems to embody all of cinema. I have not seen this movie. Um, you saw it this week. I did. Oh, you'd love it, Will. It's just like a bunch of movie jokes and a bunch of famous stars playing themselves, but not really playing themselves and cutting to like different film clips and visual gags and all sorts of stuff that would be impenetrable to anyone who doesn't watch like 360 movies a year. (laughs) Well, I do want to see it and I'm sorry I didn't see it for this week. I know that it has a cast that includes Robert De Niro, Catherine Deneuve, uh, Clint Eastwood, apparently, briefly. Just documentary footage of him at Khan at one point. Oh, like Bowfinger. Okay. Well, Harrison yeah, Ford exactly. shows up, and also Stephen Dorff is in it. In a baffling sequence where it's like, look at all these famous people, and it's all like cutouts of them. It's like Marilyn Monroe, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Stephen Dorff, and it's just Stephen Dorff. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, I mean, I, I rank Stephen Dorff with those titans. Mm-hmm. With the Christian Slaters and all the other Jack Nicholson impersonators. After this, she transitioned to, I guess you could call them essay films, uh, Mm -hmm. several cinematic self-portraits, some of her most beloved movies, including The Gleaners and I, and a movie that we both watched this week, 2009's The Beaches of Agnes. You know, I get a feeling that as you grow older, that sometimes it's easier to just make movies about yourself. And 
you know, to visualize the thoughts and feelings that you have, oftentimes taking from the past as well, which this movie does in a bunch of creative ways. I mean, I was scared at the beginning where I was like, "Uh oh, is this just going to be about her childhood? No. (laughs) Well, this is a self-portrait in which she traces her life and career structured around various beaches that she has known in her life. Well, beaches, uh, waterfront areas, etc., And as we know, beaches are typically used as metaphors for, uh, you know, the ephemeral nature of our lives, the fragility of memory, you know, sands in the hourglass and stuff getting washed out to sea. But Varda is also a photographer and a filmmaker. So it's also a film about the fact that she has been able to preserve these memories. You know, so many memories are fuzzy and so many of them are slipping away, but there are others that that are you know these concrete facts and these the images of these people that she's known and loved continue even after they fall away and there are also people that she's known and loved who we see uh, still alive Zalman King yes Zalman King the eroticist himself who appears with his wife of decades uh, I didn't know this about Zalman King that he was a happily married seemingly very normal man <laughs> I just know what a strange face he has yep and that he loves erotic movies uh, but we see him with his wife and they look very much in love and Agnes Varda even mentions in her narration that she feels a twinge of jealousy because of course her husband Jacques Demy has been uh, dead for a while and we see footage some documentary footage in fact that she shot of Jacques Demy towards the very end of his life where she was obsessed with just recording his body recording close-ups of parts of his body you know as he was fading away to create somehow a sense of permanence I think that that kind of need to continue to illustrate Jacques Demy's memory is present in all of her later day films, even the fictional ones, right? As Jacques Demy was dying of AIDS, he, uh, she made a film about his childhood, uh, Jacques Audenat, and even the movie that she made about Mr. Cinema, that character is also dying of AIDS in the film. And The Beaches of Agnes ends with this memorable image of a house that's literally built from celluloid, which I guess is kind of the metaphor of the movie about how, you know, memories are these uh, flimsy things, but but uh, celluloid somehow is forever. In this movie, she connects very clearly how her life affected her films and how they just intermingle together. And that throughout her career, she was able to extend that connection, that whatever she was feeling, she followed through the art of making movies and making shorts and taking pictures and just doing art. So again, we're coming back to the point of like, why did she become such like a fun, lovable mascot by the end? Well, it's because near the end of her life. So the whimsy came out to the front. Well, she died a very lovable and generous figure, a very inspiring figure. You're not going to ever make me a fan of JR, but... uh, (laughs) But but she she's clearly uh, a great artist, and her films are very accessible. But I think that she's a filmmaker that, as accessible as she is, one of the difficulties is that she did work in so many mediums that expressed all of her emotions. So she is an artist that's difficult to get a complete handle on. So you can send us letters, as per usual, at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. 
And what are we doing this week on the Patreon, Will? Well, uh, we're talking about a filmmaker who is arguably not as good as Agnes Varda. We're talking about Conrad Brooks. <laughs> who is Conrad Brooks, you ask? He was one of Ed Wood's drinking buddies and actors who, when Ed Wood became popular in the 90s, Conrad Brooks started making his own movies, trying to ride on his dead friend's coattails. And we watched his definitive statement, 1999's Jan Gell, The Beast from the East. And for loyal listeners of this podcast, Conrad Brooks is not to be confused with Kelton the Cop, who was a completely different actor that appeared in Ed Wood films. Yes, and it's shameful if you confuse those two. They're very, very different. So to hear the dirt on Conrad Brooks himself... It's $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and get the whole back catalog and hang out with us as you sit at home wondering when the world will collapse upon itself. Do we have any letters this week? We do have a letter and it's from Stephen Vag and it goes, Hey guys, I understand you haven't seen much Bob Hope. I completely get your dislike for him, though I think you might enjoy his comedy chillers, The Cat and the Canary and The Ghost Breakers. Road to Morocco is fun, as well as The Princess and the Pirate. He may simply not float your boat, even after these, but they are a decent sample of his work. Cheers, love the show, Steven. So I should say that I've seen a fair amount of Bob Hope. I've seen Casanova's Big Night. I've seen uh, Son of Pale Face, which is pretty good. I've seen a number of others that I can't remember right now that were probably lesser, but I have not seen the ones that he mentioned. So I should get on that and give Bob Hope, a man who I don't find particularly funny, his due. Reading this letter, it also made me think... Are there other comedians or even like dramatic people that you turned around on that you're like, ugh, they're not funny. And then suddenly you realize, oh, you know, maybe I was missing something. They are genuinely hilarious. Like, for example, Steve Odenkirk. <laughs> you just watched Kung Pao enter the fist again this week. <laughs> I did. And it was the perfect way to watch Kung Pao with two other people that were busting a gut and one person who had never seen it who sat there stone-faced the entire time. Well, it sounds like fun. And, you know, the thing about Kung Pao is, as much as I think it's a terrible movie, I do think of it, and I think of it fondly. <laughs> so, obviously, Steve Odekirk was, was on to something. That's a lot of nuts! <laughs> there you go. You know, somebody who I didn't find very funny the first time I saw him was W.C. Fields. Mm. Uh, I didn't find him very funny when I saw him as a child, but I think it must be a very personal thing. There's a scene in one of his shorts where his daughter is in it and W.C. Fields says, where's the newspaper? And she said, it's under your arm. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where, where are my glasses? They're on your head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I had that exact exchange with my late grandfather. He was Alzheimer's ridden, I should say. Oh, he wasn't doing a WC of Fields bit <laughs> on you? But but that was also the man that my grandfather was. And I feel like the minute I, I like associated him with my grandfather and I started to see the funny side of him. Uh, and now I'm, I'm like the world's biggest WC Fields fan. I think he's great. Well, I think that any film fan, once they start like getting into the movies they love will come face to face with older stuff that they're like, oh, no, this is nothing like this new and improved version. And over time you realize like, oh, no, this is great. And I just need to, you know, give contextual expectations to what I'm watching. Oh, and uh, Freddy Got Fingered only gets better with every viewing. The first time I saw that, I was like, this is amazing. And I love I it. I thought it was funny the first time. And now I think it's maybe one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, next week, we're going to be tackling a filmmaker who has been uh, occasionally requested and has been on our minds pretty much since the inception of this podcast. Somebody we've we've always meant to get around to doing, and that's Samuel Fuller. A two-fisted filmmaker, if there ever was one. And this is not a joke. I believe the first director autobiography I ever read. Whoa! I remember vividly the camping trip I took it on. It was huge. I had not seen any of his films, but I think I picked it up because at that time, the DVD restoration of the big red one came out and I was kind of fascinated by it and I wanted to know who made it. And I remember his autobiography is written like the uh, novels and even the scripts that he wrote. It's punchy. It's in your face and it's great. So I guess we'll probably watch Shock Corridor. Uh, What else should we watch? Pick up on South Street? Yeah, pick up on South Street. White Dog, his later day film, which is like a famous one for how intense and how banned it was. And the fact that he was just like a go-getter that still somehow found a way to work in the studio system. I'm tempted to watch uh, Return to Salem's Lot, which he's in. (laughs) But Uh, We watched it. For a Larry Cohen episode, Will. You don't need to watch it again. I mean, have you seen Park Row, the uh, newspaper one? No, but I saw that amazing clip you posted. Yeah, he considered one of his most personal films and his favorite that he ever made. So there's a lot. And I'm excited to finally dive into his filmography in a way that I haven't really done ever for some weird reason. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Nicklew. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I think that like the new back matter segment is now going to be, what have we been watching while we're in quarantine? I mean, Will is at a disadvantage because he's not a freak like me. And he also has a full-time job. That's right. So I'm not quite as prolific as Justin. Although, again, there's there's nothing there's nothing to do. So, of course, you watch movies. Uh, last week, Justin, you hosted a screening for our Patreon subscribers, uh, an online screening of a Thai martial arts film called Born to Fight from 2004, which I had never seen. And I had a great time watching. When I talk about films that have like the most dangerous stunts ever, Born to Fight is always number one on my list, just in bulk. <laughs> Like, when you watch that movie, it is impossible for your jaw not to drop to the floor, including a stunt where, like, an inch difference and a stuntman would have died on it. Yeah, I guess we can say what the stunt is, because there's really no spoiling it. Uh, People are fighting on top of two trucks, and a stuntman falls off one of them. These are two moving trucks, and he almost gets his head run over by a tire. Yeah, in one long take, you see him bounce off one truck, land on the ground, and the tire is an inch from hitting his head as he rolls out of frame. Incredible. Uh, Let's see, what else have I been watching? I watched this little-known Jimmy Stewart Hedy Lamar vehicle from 1941 called Come Live With Me. Just a very likable, average movie from the time. Uh, Hedy Lamar plays an immigrant who needs to have a quickie marriage with somebody so that she can she can get her visa and marry the person who she's actually in love with, who's a high-powered publisher. So she picks Jimmy Stewart, who's this kind of down-on-his-luck writer. He starts writing a book about their marriage, and it finds its way to the, the publisher, who starts to get jealous. Uh, you know, it's it's fluff, uh, but it's it's very good. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the 40s are just full of like these very uh, solid entertainments that nobody even knows about anymore. <laughs> I uh, watched something that I had been aware of and had completely forgotten, which was a French adaptation of City Hunter. 
a favorite of me and Will's. And what's shocking about the movie is it might as well have been directed by Wong Jing. It has all the same elements, but they're just in like a slick French package. And it's about a guy who's obsessed with women's butts and breasts. And he's also a detective. (laughs) And he goes on wacky adventures. It might as well have been made in 2001. There's a whole bunch of like gay panic in it. And it was just um, flabbergasting watching this. It's directed and written and stars the same person. And it was his passion project. And I was like befuddled by this. And why he would adapt a Japanese manga and anime series. And somebody commented in my review who lives in Belgium. And he says the character whose name is Nikki Larson. The film is actually called Nikki Larson and the Perfume of Cupid was massive on French television. To the point that City Hunter is probably more popular in France than it is anywhere in the world. Which is why a big budget adaptation like this can't exist. Well, I certainly sympathize with him. If I were given a chance at a dream project, I would love to cast myself as City Hunter. (laughs) And what else you watch, Will? Well, I revisited a Jean-Luc Godard movie, First Name Carmen, from the 1980s. Uh, A favorite film of Robert Pattinson's, by the way. Hmm. And it's actually quite fun, I gotta say. It's a very funny Godard movie, and I think it's pretty accessible for 80s Godard. Uh, I also watched uh, Chaplin's The Circus, which I hadn't seen in a little while, and which is also just a pure delight. Um, You know, movies, they're good, folks. Oh, wait. No, wait. I have movies that I watch, and they are not good, like Brian De Palma's Passion. (laughs) P.U. Well, this is clearly what separates the De Palma auteurists from just the casual fans, because if you were a a true Brian De Palma fan, you would have given that five stars on Letterboxd. Oh, I know. I saw a really funny review for Brian De Palma's Domino, his follow-up to this film, that ended with Brian De Palma's best film since Passion. And I was like, well, yeah, that's unarguable. It's true. It's better better than, uh, better than what did you do after that? Nothing. Just that movie. So it is automatically the best film that Brian De Palma made since Passion. I started watching Domino and didn't finish it. No, uh, people who have finished it said it's not worth it. Have you been watching any movies with friends? Like doing Zoom calls and stuff like that, Will? Uh, a week or two ago, uh, some friends and I did a Netflix party. Have you, have you seen that app? Netflix party where you basically have a chat room at the side of the screen. Mm-hmm. So we watched Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the movie's a delight. Uh, I, d- I don't know if there is a perfect way to watch movies virtually with people yet. You know, the way that I've been doing it, there's a few websites, like the one we use on Patreon, that's okay. And if it's like your good pals, open a Google Hangout screen and put them on it and make sure that no one is making noise or isn't wearing earphones. That's the only way to do it. And also, you know, try to tamp down on anybody who wants to play Mystery Science Theater 3000 because there's that temptation. It's like, okay, why am I on these screens if I'm not cracking jokes? And you you need to shut that down right away because it's, you know, a comment here or there as if you were in the room. And, you know, it makes a big difference because you're actually interacting with other people. It's the same, frankly, with the Netflix party app Mm -hmm. or anything where it's just like a virtual, like a chat room thing. There is that temptation of like, uh, um, uh, I want them to know I'm still here. Oh, was your face not on? Like you, it wasn't a webcam. It was just chatting. Yeah, that's right. It was just chatting. Oh, okay. The good thing about that is that if you're annoyed with anybody, you can just like 
close the chat and you just don't have to see it anymore. So it doesn't really bother you anymore. Right. Which you should probably do and just focus on Austin Powers. Let yourself get lost in that world. Or, you know, make your own Chantal Ackerman movie. Focus on one single person on the webcam and just stare at them for 90 minutes. (laughs) 